Every death changes someone's world, but only one death has changed the world for all. And tonight, we are gathered as a believing people to remember and to celebrate the death of Christ, knowing that in a few days we're going to celebrate as well not only his resurrection, but our hope of the resurrection of all who believe with him. And this evening, we have the opportunity not only to celebrate through song and in prayer and hearing the word, but we have the opportunity to partake together of the sacrament of the Holy Supper. Now, I see, and I'm very glad to see, quite a few faces that I am less familiar with. If you're visiting this evening and you are not a member of this church, we want you to know that you are welcome to partake with us in the supper, provided that you meet the standard that we find in Scripture And you'll find in the pew in front of you a card that describes who those people are. Essentially, that you are a member of a Protestant church that teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. And you are living in an upright manner, such that you are not under discipline, and that you have been baptized. And if this describes you, then you are welcome to partake with us, provided you fill out the card that helps us to be accountable to your elders. But if that doesn't describe you or you don't understand what I'm talking about, then we would ask that you would abstain this evening from the supper. Don't abstain from faith in the gospel, but abstain from the sacrament at this time. Now, one other important item to take note of, similar to the lessons in Carol's service at Christmas time. This service will proceed largely unannounced, so it will be important for you to take note of the asterisks that mean to stand or to sit, and to notice when there is a responsive portion, and in particular, which verses we're singing, or there will not be unity and beauty. So having noted that, I will say this much, let's rise together. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, Our Heavenly Father, we come into your presence through your Holy Spirit, welcomed through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have a people whom you are gathering from every tribe and tongue and nation throughout all ages, that your kingdom cannot be defeated, that the gates of hell shall not prevail, that no one saint who ever came to faith has been lost. We thank you for the high privilege of honoring you with our words and even more with our hearts. We thank you for the gift of being able to celebrate together and to hear in the songs some taste, some preview of what it shall be in glory. 
We desire that Christ would receive sincere love from us, to that end, soften our hearts, to be sensitive of our sin, and even all the more of the grace that you lavish upon us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord who calls us into worship greets us. Receive his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. From our risen and ascended Savior, Jesus Christ, in the fellowship and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind
many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots.
And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. Oh, my God. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people.
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The anguish of his soul he shall see.
a Savior. Not only to be delivered from your wrath, your just condemnation for our sins and our heart from which they have come, simply to have been erased from existence would have been an immeasurable mercy in view of what we deserve for having sinned against our knowledge of your infinite holiness as you are the lawgiver, the source of true conscience, the arbiter of right. But you have gone so much further from eternity with your Son and Spirit, you determined to bring us into your presence and to raise us even above the angels before whom any other men who saw them fell down to worship. Oh God, we don't even know yet what we shall be, except that we will be like Christ. Thank you, Lord. And how was this except that he became like us, even to the very lowest? We praise you, Lord, and we magnify you for the humility of your glory. We ask this evening that you would please cause your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that soul after soul would be gathered into your flock, that even this night throughout this nation and throughout the world, you would be sweeping in for eternity those whom you are saving through the message of the gospel, drawing them to faith. We pray for the grace of your Holy Spirit in it all, for we are dead without his work. We desire that your kingdom would be manifested in the transformation of our lives to bear a greater resemblance to that of Christ. We pray for our daily bread and the peace of heart not to be anxious for it, that you would please provide work for those who are seeking it, and for those who are unable, that you would provide the outpouring of generosity and care. You take care of even the birds, take care of our brothers and sisters, we pray. Our Father, we thank you for having delivered us from the power of the enemy. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Strengthen us to resist sin and to see it even as we sang as that which leads to the crucifixion of the best of all and no light thing. Father, we pray for a deeper hatred of all that is contrary to your love. We ask these things grateful that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Our primary passage this evening is Psalm 41, so I invite you to turn there. We're going to be looking at a number of verses in it more closely. As you do so, I'll mention that Psalm 41 is a psalm, a song of King David. And to place this in context, it's written approximately 800 years, 850 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. The various passages that we have read and responded from this evening are likewise typically far more ancient even than our associations with Jesus. The passage from Isaiah coming more than 600 years before Jesus. And if someone isn't familiar with that, they'll think, oh, this was written after the fact about Jesus, but it's written long before, and this is prophecy. And so we encounter here a song A song of joy, but reflecting on a time of sorrow. And it is also prophetic, as we're going to see. Hear together with me the word of God beginning at verse 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting Amen and amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would pour out upon us understanding and receptiveness, that we should perceive the working of your Holy Spirit, showing us through the scriptures that you understand us better than we do ourselves, that you know in truth what is good for us, that we would trust you more than we did when we came in, that you would renew us. Out of these things, we pray that you would raise in us fresh thankfulness, for you are worthy of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you regard yourself, and this is not rhetorical, do you regard yourself as a believer? 
every believer has a cross to bear. There is not a believer who does not have a cross shaped by the Lord particular to their calling. Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter 16, and he cannot lie. Take up your cross and follow me. Every single one of us has a portion of affliction and suffering that God has meted out for us to receive in this life. The scriptures don't tell us that that is to atone for our sins. It does say some of what the purposes are. But then in this life, we may not simply know why we suffer in the ways that we do. If you are a believer this evening, you have a cross to bear. But that does not mean that every one of us manages our cross in the same way. From person to person or even just circumstance to circumstance, we handle differently this affliction that we experience. And at times, many of you have already and others of you surely shall feel sorely tempted to think that God's favor has been withdrawn from your life. C.S. Lewis, after the passing of his wife, recounted in a small book, really it was his journal, that this man of God who had been respected for his faith spent the next several months feeling that when he prayed, his prayers shattered off the ceiling. And it seemed to him as if the devil was always whispering, there is no one upstairs listening to you. And you may feel that way. And this evening, through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is calling to you to set your eyes upon Christ's cross, not your own. Because in doing that, you gain the ability to see and to interpret your cross as being truly for your good. So the Lord calls you, take your eyes off your cross and put them on Christ's cross. And how does he show us that? Now, Psalm 41 recounts such a time in David's life where he was suffering greatly. And he was very mindful of the afflictions that he was bearing. Psalm 41 reveals in verse 3 that it was composed in a period or after a period of severe illness. So ill that people were saying he's surely going to die of this. He was probably later in his life. If you compare this with Psalm 55, which most scholars place in the same period, it seems he was unable even to fulfill his royal duties. And so he talks about crime being on the rise, oppression going up, fraud in the streets. David was very, very sick. When your health is good, we can seem to weather almost anything. When your health is poor, everything is a great burden. But then on top of that, David is mindful in the psalm that the very people who were supposed to rally around him to support him as the Lord's chosen king were instead seizing this opportunity. The most powerful people of Jerusalem began to plot how they might replace him. This is our opportunity. You find this in verses 5 through 8. And David mentions how they spoke platitudes when they had come to him. Children, can you imagine somebody coming into your room and you're very sick and saying, oh, I'm so sorry that you're sick. And then as they walk out, you hear them begin to snicker and to laugh. 
word comes back to David that these people are whispering about how they might remove him. Verse 7, they imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. We all expect a certain number of people in this world to be against us. And if you have the audacity to enter public office, of course you know that there will be many people opposed to you. David was a public figure, and he was not surprised that there were some opposed to him. But verse 9 laments that one of his most close companions turned upon him as well. He says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, who is he talking about? It's difficult to be precisely sure. But generally, scholars have pinpointed one person as most likely. If you're not familiar with the story, David's own son Absalom leads a rebellion. And right there is deep pain. Absalom is not only rebelling against his father, he's rebelling against the Lord and everything he was raised to believe. And one person goes over to Absalom's side that seems to make all the difference for whether David can prevail. And that's a man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel, David describes him as being his greatest counselor. A man whose wisdom is like the very oracles of God. He's like a prophet because he can perceive how the world works. Here was David's chief advisor, the kind of person he would have spent the majority of his time with. And he turns upon him. When you're already sick in body, almost to the point of death, and then all turn on you, how low must David have felt? He was a man after God's own heart, but he's also a man after your heart and my heart. He's a human. And with David, you probably wonder at times, why does God allow suffering like the suffering that I'm going through? And we tell ourselves that if we had someone else's suffering, it'd be easier to manage. Lord, why have you given me my particular suffering? We may even find ourselves at times exclaiming with David as he does in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you have never yet felt that way, you likely will. If God grants you years, and if you are on the side of the Lord, then you have an enemy who will not go easy on you. And you wonder, why is the Lord allowing this? When you search the scriptures, you can find some answers. There are several answers that are true of all believers. Why does the Lord give you a particular cross? One that we see in this passage is that the Lord uses it to foster humility and a sense of dependence. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, says David. And it's through our suffering that we often learn deep lessons about our own weakness, about the terror of sin. The Lord is a father who loves his children and he will not spare chastening them. David's response in verse 4 is that he's driven to prayer. Where he says, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. This is not simply about vengeance. 
This is the desire to fulfill the office that God has given him and to protect his people from evil others. When you are cast down, you can do no better than to pray. And in that time, I think all of us fall into a mode of promising God how we're going to live if he will heal us. I would not recommend that path. I'd follow instead David's example of saying simply in this psalm, I am a sinner. Have mercy upon me. And then from that gratitude, do indeed live for him if he should give you the life to. The Lord brings us to humility and dependence, and then he is happy to demonstrate his power. It's not about us. It's about the demonstration of his attributes. This whole world was not built from nothing down to the tiniest molecules and then huge galaxies beyond all measure so that you could shine on the stage and receive glory. It is the theater of his honor and ingenuity and goodness and compassion. And your glory is to be effective for that purpose. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, the apostle says, We have this treasure in jars of clay, speaking of the Holy Spirit of Christ given to weak people like us, not vessels of gold, jars of clay prone to cracking, cheap, made from the mud. That's us. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. As the Lord carries you through experiences where you came to feel, I cannot do this, you are driven to acknowledge it's the Lord. The Lord is carrying me through. And that in turn is meant to excite you to praise. And that's the response that we find for David here. After David is restored, then he bursts out in song. And the whole purpose of that is just like gathering coals together. When one person among God's people begins to praise, this spreads like fire. And if you wonder this evening why for a long time you have felt so spiritually cold, place yourself among the people who are praising. Place yourself among the people who are not grumbling against the Lord, but who have found a source of joy in him. In verse 2, David says, The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. In verse 13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And so these are some of the reasons why God allows you to experience a cross that are common to all of us. But then there are also reasons that are particular to your life 
that will in all likelihood not be known in this life. And that's true of David as well. Deeper purposes he did not yet know about, or maybe he only knew very, very vaguely. David's life was uniquely shaped by the Holy Spirit. His life was shaped to prefigure the coming of the true Messiah, the true anointed king. And so his whole life has these experiences that are uncanny. And he must have often wondered, Lord, why did you bring me through that? Why me? Why should I strike down Goliath? In all these ways, he was picturing to us the victory of Christ who was to come. And that means that he would pass through certain kinds of suffering. And in this way, show that our king would suffer. Compare Psalm 41 to Jesus' suffering and to his crucifixion. And what stands out? You notice that the powerful of Jerusalem plot against their king. When they should have been rallying around him, they plot. One of his closest companions betrays him. This is not, by the way, conjecture on my part. There are some times where people stretch and strain to try to make something that they read in the Bible connect more obviously to Jesus. In John chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus explicitly cites Psalm 41, particularly verse 9, the one that I ate my bread with, and he connects it to the betrayal by Judas. All these things were shaping and prefiguring for our understanding of what Jesus was to experience. David's bodily agony does not compare to what Christ was to suffer. David's sense of betrayal, of being surrounded on all sides by enemies, visible and invisible, does not compare to all that was arraigned against Christ. But then David himself did not die. Christ goes further to even taste death. David could not grasp then, not fully anyway, how his suffering was fulfilling a purpose. And you don't grasp, and I don't grasp, all the ways our suffering fulfills God's purposes. That goes for the difficult things, but also for the blessings. David could not have fully appreciated how passing through suffering being restored not only to health, but being placed back in power, how that was to prefigure the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 8 again. Hear it in that light, the light of Jesus. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Surely that was on the lips of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Pilate. How much more our spiritual enemy, who in his hubris must surely have doubted or denied anything like the resurrection. Verse 10, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this, I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. Why? Verse 12. You have upheld me because of my integrity. 
and set me in your presence forever. Here, the psalmist, by way of prophecy, alludes to the only reason any of you have any hope. What is it? It is not anything that you or you or you might ever have done. From eternity, knowing that we would cast ourselves headlong into the black bay of sin, God was pleased to make a covenant. The son pledged to his father, I will be their mediator. I will be their surety. I will do everything necessary to claim a people for you. I will live in their place. I will be righteous. Only count to me their sin and count to them my integrity. And the Father honors it, and the Spirit honors it, and Christ honored his side of the covenant. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. Whatever silence followed Christ's death on the cross, there will be the most deafening roar of acclamation when we behold him in the flesh. And there will be solid joy when we see him bring both recompense, as he says here, that I may repay them upon the wicked, those who did not, as it says in 2 Thessalonians, obey the gospel. What about those who did not hear the gospel? The judgment of the world is not that they heard the gospel and rejected it. The judgment of the world is that they love sin and do not love God. The grace of the gospel is the promise that all who hear and desire to be made righteous only on the basis of faith, not adding anything. You are justified. How could David have perfectly understood that? Even so, we don't understand all of the things that we're going through or shall go through. And so at times, you have felt overwhelmed. And you felt surrounded on all sides by enemies, visible and invisible. And some of you have been, even in the last while, cast down in the sickbed and wondered whether you'd live. And why is God doing this? The Lord may not tell you the particulars, but what he does say is look to the cross of Christ. How can you look upon him on the cross knowing that he went willingly? The father didn't have a pitchfork to his back making him go. Jesus said, for the joy that is set before me, I go to the cross, though I despise the shame. The joy he was talking about was the joy of being with you. Can you believe that? And he knows what you shall be when you are fully glorified. He delights to be with you forever. How can you look at Christ on the cross and think he doesn't love you? Many people would perhaps lay their lives down for their friends. Who would lay their life down for you if they knew exactly who you are? And who would suffer what Christ suffered, which was more than any mere man being upheld by the Holy Spirit? 
Romans chapter 6, verse 5 speaks of this as a way that you might hold the cross as a lens to interpret the hard writing of providence. He says, the apostle in Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. When you consider yourself that way, you will be assured your cross is for good. I want to leave you with some words which have been lately a comfort to me. These are words from J.C. Ryle. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, he says, Affliction is one of God's medicines. By it, he often teaches lessons which would be learned in no other way. By it, he often draws souls away from sin and the world, which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is a greater. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. Let us beware of murmuring in the time of trouble. Let us settle it firmly in our minds that there is a meaning, a needs be, and a message from God in every sorrow that falls upon us. There are no lessons so useful as those learned in the school of affliction. There is no commentary that opens up the Bible so much as sickness and sorrow. The resurrection morning will prove that many of the losses of God's people were in reality eternal gains. Thousands at the last day will testify with David, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we ask this evening as we commemorate the death of your Son, that you would help us not to dishonor you by crying out in unbelief and a sense of false injustice when you lay your hand heavily upon us. What the world means for evil, you use for good. We ask that you would receive from us humble thankfulness that you are not done working and that your work shall be complete. We thank you for the assurance of these things through Christ who rose victoriously. In these intervening days, prepare us to bring him heartfelt praise. For in his name we pray. Amen. For those who are visiting this evening, I want again to remind you that before you partake, please fill out the Lord's Supper visitor participation form.
as you do that, hear together with me words from short form two on page 53 in the Thin Forms and Prayers book. Brothers and sisters, you who desire to come to the Holy Communion of the body and blood of our Savior must consider how the Apostle Paul exhorts us diligently to examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For as the benefit of this sacred meal is great, if we receive the sacrament with a penitent heart and lively faith, so is the danger great if we receive it in an unworthy manner. For then we are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. We eat and drink to our own judgment, and we kindle God's wrath against us. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged by the Lord. Therefore, truly repent of your sins, place a lively and steadfast faith in Christ our Savior, and live in love with all people so that you will be worthy partakers of this holy sacrament. Above all things, you must give most humble and sincere thanks to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the redemption of the world by the passion and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Give thanks that he who is God became man. Give thanks that the Son humbled himself to death upon the cross for us, miserable sinners. Give thanks that we, who walk in this dark world and in the shadow of death, have been made the children of God and exalted to everlasting life. Because of this, we should always remember the exceedingly great love of our only Savior, Jesus Christ, and the innumerable benefits that he has obtained for us by his precious blood. This is why he instituted and ordained holy sacraments as pledges of his love and for a continual remembrance of his death to our great and endless comfort. To him, therefore, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, let us give continual thanks, submitting ourselves completely to his holy will and pleasure, and seeking to serve him in true holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. To all of you who truly and earnestly repent of your sins, who embrace Jesus by faith as your Savior, and who desire more and more to lead a new life, following the commandments of God, draw near and take this holy sacrament for your comfort. To that end, hear what comforting words our Savior Jesus Christ speaks to all that truly turn to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Join me in prayer. Our Creator and Father, we don't presume to come to this table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercy. We freely confess that we are not worthy to gather up even a single crumb from this table. But dressed in Christ's righteousness, we are led by you through the gospel to take our seat. We thank you that you have prepared for us this pledge of your everlasting love. And we ask that you would sanctify it to us and us to it, that we would use it with faith and receive 
a deeper sense of assurance and union with our Savior. For in his name we pray. Amen. We'll stand together to confess our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Brothers and sisters, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Beloved, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. May the body of our Lord Jesus Christ which was given for you, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life.
It's possible, it's common in the presence of the sacrament to feel ourselves unworthy to partake. And yet that is exactly how you must feel, to come worthily, recognizing that in yourself you are not. And what a comfort that so many of the songs we sang tonight bear witness throughout the ages through lyrics that call us worms and all of that. And this is not the Christian just being down on him or herself. It's a recognition of the compassion of the Lord. Eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. May the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life.
The fact that it is wine speaks to his blood. And you can't think of the death of Christ without a measure of sorrow. But take heart and think the only blood Jesus has now is very much alive. He is alive. And we look forward to celebrating not only this coming Easter, but our life with him. Let that be on your heart as you partake with me. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that we who have rested in Jesus Christ will share the supper with him in glory. That even as we partake tonight of this bread and wine, so we will break bread, never to betray him again. Our Father, we ask that you would please nourish us, build us up as a people, Send us into the world on your mission. Draw to yourself all who are being saved. And bring forth from us great joy. We thank you this evening, Lord, for the opportunity to gather here. We thank you for the abundance of gifts that you have poured into this congregation. We thank you for both making it providentially possible and laying it on the hearts of so many to contribute their various gifts. We ask your blessing upon them. Our Father, please bless the services of your churches throughout this city and the whole world this coming Lord's Day. Help us to ring out in this world. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Amid the sorrow of the subject, it has been a glorious night. What a blessing that God has given us, Christ and his people. And we'll close with a benediction and we'll respond together with the words from Jonah 2.9. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The word of Christ dwell in you richly, filling your heart with thankfulness to God.